In the years leading up to the Norman invasion, England was ruled by King Edward the Confessor. But while he was in charge, he was a distant, aloof figure, increasingly spending time within his palace on Thorny Island, investing more and more into his adoptive heir, a fellow exile without a father, the young boy Edgar Etheling. And the country was increasingly in the hands of the Godwinson dynasty. For the majority of the 1050s and the 1060s, England was, in terms of real politics, firmly the domain of Harold Godwinson and his family. He wasn't king, but he was clearly in the driving seat. Historians do like to say Godwinson was only king for a few months in 1066 before he was killed by William of Normandy at the Battle of Hastings, and as such, we'll never know what kind of monarch he would have been. I feel that's untrue, because for the best part of a decade he had free reign to run England. It was, in effect, his own personal family fiefdom. And as such, I believe we know exactly what kind of ruler Harold Godwinson would have been, as during that era we see a man who was brutal, self-indulgent, and in way over his head. He never saw the big picture. <laughs> he barely saw the medium-term picture. And he really does come across as a middle manager, suddenly given huge responsibility. And this is me being nice to him. Trust me, I get worse. How on earth did London cope with this inept little person? Well, let's find out, shall we? Hi. My name is Saul and this is the Story of London. This is a podcast about the tale of the city and how it rode the wave of the procession of history taking place in and around it. This episode's about the messy bit of time that took place just before William the Conqueror turned up. An era which people try to avoid as it's insanely complex and what comes later is way more interesting. But to understand why a bunch of psychotic Normans showed up in London in 1066... We have to talk about the man and the family who caused everything bad to happen. Welcome then to Godwinland. regular listeners know, this is a podcast about London and the story of that place. And the problem about the era between 1055 and 1065 is that most of the exciting things that took place, they didn't happen in London. In fact, it mostly happened elsewhere. And I really did not want to spend an episode going on about elsewhere in detail again. But what I can't do, and I was tempted to, trust me, is to say, well, nothing of importance happened in London during this era, so let's zoom on to the actual invasion of the Normans, shall we? Because there are a few things that went down that were to have huge implications for London in the next few decades. So I'm going to cover these things from a Londoner's perspective and try to report them the way the Londoners probably would have heard about them. Please understand Everything in this episode is the source of much debate and discussion. Eminent historians of great skill have produced 
copious amounts of books and papers specifically on these events, each giving their own interpretation, their own take as they see it. And behind each event I'm going to describe is a plethora of debates and discussions as they seek to offer an accurate account of these moments. As a storyteller, my role is to fabricate a narrative that fits within the one I've already told and sets up the next part. As such, nothing I say from here on in is my own theory, unless I specifically say so. Rather, what follows is my choice of the various theories the evidence offers to us about what happened and how this impacted upon London. I just ask before we get into it, you keep that in mind. My starting postulation is simple and brutal. I think Harold Godwinson was the worst character of the entire Anglo-Saxon era ever. In this decade, his incompetence and uselessness caused England to be significantly weakened to the point that it was unable to mount a strong defence against the Normans, and ultimately that he caused the Norman invasion. It was him, all him, Harold Godwinson in the kitchen with a candlestick. All the blood spilt in the years ahead are on his hand. Harold Godwinson, je accuse. Now, with that said, I feel I should throw Harold Godwinson a bone. Try to find some redemption for this useless little twerp somewhere. And I can throw him a bone. This is it. Harold Godwinson was merely a symptom of a deeper disease, like a particularly nasty scab caused by a virulent and rancid infection. His problem was that he was simply the personification of a deeper cancer destroying England. And that cancer was? Well, if you've been listening for a while, all the way back in chapter 26 of this podcast, you may remember I was describing the internal weaknesses that England was facing during the reign of King Edgar the Not Especially Peaceable. And I said, all the way back then, that the fundamental root of everything was caused by the changes Alfred the Great had made when he reformed England to make it strong, durable, and able to face down the Vikings. Especially the changes involved with creating the Fjord, the Standing Army of England. What he did was create a system that made his nation way more robust, all good. But one of the side effects I said back in chapter 26 was that nobles in England went from being warriors who led war bands personally and were expected to raise their sons to also fight in war bands the way their ancient Saxon forebears had done, to become men who owned land and who basically sought to increase their land to give to their kids whose purpose was to own that land and increase it also. And that's a big difference. And we had seen since the reign of Edgar, the conflict caused by this caused division, instability and ineptitude. And it got so bad we thought it reached its zenith with the rather crap early reign of King Ethelred Unred and the conniving, self-serving and utterly useless nobility of the first few decades of his reign. But that era wasn't the zenith. The zenith of the problem was the family of Godwin of Wessex, a family driven by a compulsion to just own more land. They wanted land, all the land. It was all about land, and with that land, wealth, and with that wealth, power. That was them. And with the death of his father, his oldest surviving son, Harold, had inherited this urge. Alas, unlike his father, he wasn't this giant dynastic figure, self-made and self-elevated. 
Harold was the spoiled second son, limited in ability, talent and awareness, and his limitations were to cause England staggering damage. So let's look at what these limitations were, and we'll start with him and his family's desire to just simply gain more power. When his father had died, Harold had gained his father's earldom of Wessex, making him basically the man who owned the entire south of England, or so much of it, it staggers you. The king had been put into a political box again by Harold and his father and brothers, and he no longer sought to oppose the Godwinson dynasty, nor would he ever again until maybe the last moments of his life. And the king's strongest political weapon, his queen, Edith, who was probably traumatised after her husband had bundled her off into a convent, was also Harold's sister. Edith had emerged from that convent and had retaken her position at Edward's side, but something had changed with her. The considerable skills she brought to the king she now used on behalf of her family equally, because make no mistake, throughout this decade, the Godwin children as one began to grow in power above their seemingly impossible to emulate position of power they were already in. And Edith was pivotal to this. Now, this rise in power by the Godwins was sometimes brought about by circumstances. For example, during this decade, the Earl of Northumbria got involved in Scottish politics, and he invaded Scotland to go after the king up there, a man called Macbeth. Yes, that Macbeth. And during that campaign, his eldest son died. And then the Earl of Northumbria died himself, leaving a young son to inherit the title who wasn't old enough to. Cue the Godwins, strong-arming everyone to get their family to take over Northumbria now, giving them control over the north of England as well as the south. Come on, this is indicative of a grasping, rather covetous nature, don't you think? Their issue was that there were simply too many sons of Godwin. Even with the eldest, who were dead in Byzantium, you had Harold, Tostig, Lifwine and Guth. Clearly, Harold wanted his brothers to all rule something. Only there was only so much England to go around, and that meant that eventually Harold would run into conflict with his fellow earls. Now, one would hope he'd see the big picture and manage such rivalries maturely. But he didn't. If you want to see just how short-sighted Harold was about everything, then look no further than his relationship with the son of the then Earl of Mercia, a man called Elfgar Leofixen. Remember how a couple of chapters ago I described how Harold had been exiled after Edward's brilliant ambush in Southwark? Harold at that time had been the Earl of East Anglia, and what with him now declared exile and outlaw, the earldom had been given to Elfgar in 1051. By 1052, Harold was formally forgiven and got his earldom back of Elfgar. But we think it was from here that Harold just got a bee in his bonnet about that Mercian. The next year, however, Godwin died. And so in 1053, Harold had to vacate the earldom of East Anglia to take over the position of Earl of Wessex. And as such, despite the fact they wanted to give East Anglia to Tostig, the influence of the Earl of Mercia was just about able to swing the day. And Elfgar was now Earl of East Anglia again. By 1055, however, Seward, Earl of Northumbria, was dead, 
and now Tostig gets the earldom of Northumbria, which means everyone is happy, right? The Godwins had their extra earldom, and all is fine. Alas not, Harold was clearly gunning for Elfgar, and we know this because the big political news from 1055 was that Earl Elfgar of East Anglia was exiled. We're not 100% sure why either, with some claiming he did nothing wrong and others claiming he was guilty of something bad. But it's obvious that the Godwinsons were just gunning for him. Harold had arranged his younger brother Gerth to be placed in charge of Norfolk, which was deep inside Elfgar's territory. And maybe all Elfgar did was say, hey, why is this little guy ruling my territory? And hey presto, Harold had an excuse to move against Elfgar and his family claimed East Anglia. Now this was stupid for many reasons, not least of which being while Harold didn't like the idea, England needed Elfgar as a competent earl. But be that as it may, Elfgar was now in exile and Harold seriously did not once think that maybe, just maybe, what he and his father had done to England when they were exiled could be copied by Elfgar. Which is important, because guess what Elfgar did? He copied the Godwinsons and did exactly what they did when they were exiled. To be precise, one source says Elfgar, quote, soon went to Ireland and returned when he had acquired 18 pirate ships and approached Grufford, King of Wales, to request his help against King Edward, unquote. So literally, this Elfgar took a leaf out of Sven Godwinson's book by making an alliance with Gruffid at Llewellyn, and then took a leaf out of Harold Godwinson's book by hiring a large fleet of Vikings to attack England. Now, you may have noticed I've mentioned this figure, Gruffid at Llewellyn, a few times now. Let's put this guy in the right position historically. In the era of political giants like Godwin of Wessex and Macbeth of Scotland, Gruffid ap Llewellyn was the biggest badass of them all. He was the first man to unite the fractious kingdoms of Wales. And he didn't do that by being an inspired leader, by the way. He did it the hard way. Vicious campaigns of much death and bloodshed and bad stuff. He was a tyrant in all ways. But he is, at this moment, the power in Wales. And him joining forces with Elfgar is kind of a big deal symbolically. You see, Gruffid ap Llewellyn first rose to fame by going to war with the forces of Mercia, and he personally oversaw the killing of Elfgar's uncle back in the day. Well, here and now to Elfgar, beggars can't be choosers. So Elfgar joins forces with this mad Welsh king and they supplement their forces with a shed load of Vikings of the Norse diaspora and they invade England and they kick England's ass. 1055, Elfgar and Gruffid and some Irish Vikings take out the fjord and then burst into Hereford, killed at least 500 men, had way too much fun, murdered seven peace trying to hold the door of the cathedral closed, looted everything not nailed down, and then basically Elfgar sent word to Harold and King Edward going, can I have East Anglia back? Or do you want me to carry on? Remember, King Edward was geopolitically a glove puppet for Harold right now. And Harold realised not only had he picked this fight with Elfgar, he'd been utterly wiped out by Elfgar doing what he and his father had did back on Edward. Harold capitulated, and by year end, Elfgar was back in place. Was that the end of the trouble Harold was causing? No. You see, 
By 1057, Elfgar's father, old Earl Leofric of Mercia, died. As such, Earl Elfgar of East Anglia gave up that title and became Earl of Mercia. And Harold and the family finally got hold of East Anglia. He and Edith made sure their baby brother Gerth took the earldom and Harold expanded his lands. So by 1057, see the picture here. Edward the Confessor's on the throne. He has an heir, a kid called Edgar Aetheling, who's Hungarian, barely speaks English, and behind whom everyone should be supporting, but everybody's too busy playing reindeer games. Meanwhile, Elfgar is the Earl of Mercia, and the earldoms of Wessex, Northumbria, and East Anglia are all held by Harold and his brothers. Is Harold happy? No. Why is he not happy? I don't know. I get the feeling that he saw Mercia like a Pokemon and he just had to collect them all or something. So yes, Harold Godwinson's rivalry with Earl Elfgar explodes again. And in 1058, he arranges for Elfgar to be expelled a second time. Why? We have no idea. No, seriously, we never do actually find out why. And there's a deliberate reason for this. And we think it's because what happens is such a monumental disaster for England and makes Harold look so inept that the Godwinsons let it be known to anyone who was comprising the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that they were not to write down what transpired. Either that or the scribes themselves were all like, what the hell did Harold just do now? Because the entry for 1058 honestly says they're not going to explain what happened because the events were, quote, too tedious to relate, unquote. Too tedious? Given what we think those events were, they were not tedious. They were quite the opposite. So what do we think actually happened? Well, we know from Irish records that, now exiled again, Elfgar decided to do exactly what he did the last time and go seek out Gruffid ap Llewellyn. Only this time he offered his daughter Elgith to be a bride of Gruffid. This time he was making their alliance a much more formal deal. And this time we hear that Elfgar of Mercia was once again joined by the army of Gruffid ap Llewellyn, so the army of Wales, and the Vikings of Dublin, and the Vikings of the Hebrides, and the Vikings of the Orkneys. And this combined Norse diasporan force was led by Magnus, the eldest son of King Harald Hardrada of Norway. Basically, we have a massive international invasion force coming to wage war on England, an actual invasion in 1058. And Irish sources claim they were actually trying to topple Edward, and in that respect, they clearly failed. But if the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle isn't describing this in any detail, and is trying to style out this invasion like it's just too tedious to relate, this is to me what the residents of London would have known at the time. What happened that year was a huge mess, and it was entirely caused by Harold. And given that we hear nothing except that by year-end, Elfgar is Earl of Frickin' Mercia again, let's call it for what it probably was. Harold went to seize Mercia, the former Earl of Mercia gathers up a huge body of Vikings and the equally huge army of Wales, 
and this force mounts the most serious Irish Sea invasion of England since Olaf Guthrieson back when he annexed everything north of Watling Street after Athelstan died. The English paid them off or just held them off, but enough losses were inflicted and enough damage was done that Harold meekly agreed that Elfgar can have his bloody earldom back. Any which way, the copious lack of detail about this invasion of 1058 suggests very strongly that Harold started a row he couldn't finish again, and he ended up handing Mercia back and erased the records by declaring it all fake news. It seems as if the aging King Edward was unable to stop these Godwinsons, but that Elfgar of Mercia could, at least until 1062 or so. And in that year, Elfgar died, of natural causes, we think. And this led, because his eldest son had died a few years before, to his much younger second son, Edwin, who's probably only in his teens, to inherit Mercia. Now, for Harold Godwinson, this was good news, because while his track record had showed he was A, good at launching slave raids upon England, and B, good at burning English estates, so far he had showed he had the diplomatic skills of a brick and had utterly failed to intimidate Elfgar, but he was fairly sure he could intimidate Elfgar's teenage son. And so he did. And he did this because he wanted Edgar to stay out of another fight he was picking. Because Harold decided at this point to go after the constant source of his recent vexations. And on Christmas Day in the year 1063, Harold Godwinson tried to ambush Griffith Ap Llewellyn in his estates as he relaxed at home celebrating. And guess what? Harold screwed that up. Griffith Ap Llewellyn escaped. And the result? Harold now had a full-scale war with Wales going on. But here Harold showed he had some military chops. He decided to copy the tactics he'd used when he was involved in some fighting in Scotland a few years earlier. Harold invaded Wales via Bristol, taking his force on the ship's fjord. And he had his brother, Tostig, the Earl of Northumbria, invade North Wales and unleashed a pincer attack upon the Welsh kingdom. Gruffid Ap Llewellyn's response to this masterstroke, well, he withdrew into the mountains of Snowdonia and basically told his men to don camo gear and go full Rambo first blood upon the English. A very nasty war of attrition took place. Gruffid Ap Llewellyn unleashed seven grades of guerrilla warfare upon the Godwinson brothers as they unleashed a nutly unrequired war upon the Welsh kingdom. Harold had again screwed up and England was suffering from it as the fjord from as far away of Northumbria were now dying on the slopes of Welsh mountains. Now I must give Harold his due. He seems to have gotten one thing right. He basically ordered the English fjord to get rid of their heavy armour and their mail shirts and to wear leather armour and to engage in guerrilla warfare back upon the Welsh. This worked. It stopped them from at least losing but it wasn't enough to sway the war in his favour. Right now, Harold Godwinson needed a quick solution to a war before it dragged on, and he came up with a genius idea to end the conflict in Wales and come away with a result. And what was Godwinson's genius idea? Genocide. Harold ordered every single male Welshman of any age dead. Young men, old men, kids, babies, if it's male, kill it. Maybe I shouldn't 
judged too harshly. Maybe it wasn't full-blown genocide, just a minor crime against humanity. But put it this way, some decades from now, when the Normans arrived in the region, they were able to conquer much of Wales. And at the time, writers observed it was because Wales as a nation had not recovered from the sheer loss of life inflicted upon it by Harold Godwinson and his brother Tostig. And just when you think this story can't get any worse, oh it did. So in the end, after devastating the nation that badly, the remaining powers in Wales gave up on this fight. Gruffydd ap Llywelyn was probably killed by his own bodyguards in Dublin, and Wales was broken as a power. And the direct result was that there was a lot of Welsh widows right now. Welsh widows who had actually set to come into quite a bit of wealth and estates that had belonged to their late husbands. And these estates would be theirs until they married again, in which case they would become the property of their new husbands. And no sooner had Harold won his genocidal campaign of death in Wales than he allows Englishmen marry Welsh women. And by allow, we mean positively encouraged Englishmen to go to Wales, grab a Welsh widow and marry her if she likes it or not. In today's language, we would say this was an example of imperialism and colonisation. At best, at worst, we'd call it ethnic cleansing. Harold Godwinson, by 1065, we see as a man who doesn't really think about the consequences of his actions. He is, by all accounts, on a personal basis, open, friendly, even personable. Those closest to him like the guy, it seems. But his actions across the 1050s and 1060s reveal an impulsive, domineering man, filled with an inflated sense of his own importance, coupled with an inability to grasp at the consequences of what he's doing. And if you want to see the ultimate proof as to his uselessness when it came to understanding power and the responsibilities of power, it was to be seen in the worst year of the era before he became king. It was in the actions of the year 1065. And we look at them, and it starts with one of the most hotly debated, controversial, and complicated events of this entire era. Because Harold went to Normandy. Sometime we think about August 1065. Harold Godwinson crossed the English Channel, and he returned in October that year. According to the Normans, later... During that trip, Harold promised to support William of Normandy in claiming the throne of England. According to English sources written even later, he didn't do that and he only arrived there because his ship was blown off course and any promises he made, whatever they were, were menaced out of him so they don't count. And normally I'd leave it there, but what you have to understand is what was decided over those eight and nine weeks or so was to change the fate of London forever, so we need to look at it a little. Trust me, I will be brief and as brutal as possible because what happened in Normandy is a historical rabbit hole where not only do we try to work out who said what to whom, we spend just as long studying the writers who claimed who said what to whom and their lives and their biases. So what do we know? Well, we know that Harold rarely left England. Indeed, when he did leave England, it was either when he was in exile or if he was on diplomatic activity for King Edward. And we know that previous to this trip, the only diplomatic missions Edward had ever sent him on was in 1056, 
when it sent Harold to Flanders to help get Edward the Exile and Edgar Aetheling back into England. So Edward, we know, would send Harold on missions to do with business to do with the succession, maybe. And we are fairly sure that Harold meant to sail across the Channel. But he ended up being taken prisoner by someone called Guy of Pothier. And he seems to have taken him prisoner because he wanted to hand him over to Count Eustace. Do you remember him? The guy who'd started the trouble over in 1051 in Dover? Yeah, him. Whatever the case, while he was being held hostage by Guy, word got to William, the Duke of Normandy, and he intervened and got Harold out of Guy's place and took him to his court. And here, William and Harold spent a few weeks, if not months, together. And something was planned, and something was arranged. And it was so damn good and important that William of Normandy agreed to hand over one of the two Godwinsons he was holding hostage. As I said a couple of chapters ago, William had Harold's younger brother, Wolfnoth, as a hostage, and he also had his nephew, Harkon, as a hostage. This gave him leverage over Harold Godwinson. So some kind of deal was made. Harold stuck around with William, and he actually probably went on campaign with him as William had to go have a fight over in Brittany. Whatever they agreed, it was enough for William of Normandy to hand over Harkon to Harold to take home, but not his brother Wolfnoth. So what was agreed, we really do not know. But based on the endless speculation, I can hazard a guess. But remember, this is only a guess based on dozens of books and a multitude of opinion, most of which will disagree with this. But Harold could not have promised William the English crown as it wasn't his to give. Edgar Aetheling was named heir, but remember, even his title only meant throne-worthy. Kings in England were chosen by the Witangamot. So Harold couldn't have lied to William and made such an offer. Maybe William asked Harold to propose William to the Witangamot. I mean, I can see William's thinking here. It's like, hey, Harold, your father, Godwin, sold out England to support a foreign king, Canute, and your sister sold out England to support another foreign-raised king, Edward. If you make me your king, I'll do the Canute, and you can do what your old man did, and you can run the nation for me. So he could have made that proposal, and Harold could have agreed. I mean, the Godwin family had form, after all. But given William had never claimed, hey, you never guess what Harold promised me for months afterwards, I don't think he did. I don't think anyone was contesting the plan. Edgar becomes king, Edith becomes regent, and Harold Godwinson continues his role as the principal lord and protector of England. And to William, the death of Edward would have been a bit of a bummer, as right now, as we know, he had since probably 1052, been recognised as Edward's kin, and with his death... William wouldn't have any link to England anymore. And this is why some have suggested that what William offered was to marry off his 12-year-old daughter to Harold when she came of age, William securing an alliance with the Godwinsons. That way, when the new boy king takes over, William has an in with the most powerful dynasty around. We don't know. There are claims and counterclaims for both William's people and Harold's people after the fact that makes the waters here very murky. But I have to then just throw in my own opinion, which we're all missing the obvious offer that William would have made at this point. And perhaps 
the one Edward would have wanted Harold to sort out and why he sent him to Normandy in the first place. Why not betroth William's 12-year-old daughter to Edgar Etheling of England? That way the House of Normandy is tied back into the House of Wessex. The young king has a father-in-law just south of England to secure his position and the Godwinsons can carry on running everything. We don't know, but I, for one, think this is the most obvious offer as it was in keeping with the status quo at the time, the House of Wessex rules, but now William fulfills his obligation to Edward and secures his heir's rule. Most historians say that William and Harold agreed to something. William gave him Harold his nephew as a sign of good faith, kept their baby brother as a sign of I still have something over you, and Harold returned and according to the Bayeux Tapestry, was immediately in hot water with Edward. Maybe Edward had sent Harold over to offer a union between Edgar and William's daughter. And Harold said, hey William, she should marry me, I'm the real power in England. I mean, he could wait a couple of years, sure, but if she marries me, I can further your cause way more than Edgar the Hungarian. The impression we get is that Harold made some kind of deal, and this upset Edward somehow. Given his track record, Whatever deal Harold made, it was probably short-sighted and grandiose, like all his actions. But the final event in 1065 that cements the rather useless nature of the Godwinson dynasty took place later that year, as Northumbria basically rose up in rebellion against Harold's brother, Earl Tostig Godwinson. This rebellion had been building for years, and despite Edith and Edward liking Tostig, the king and Tostig did appear to gel with similar personalities. Harold found this rebellion a distraction for some reason. He'd originally agreed to stand by his brother, but realised how serious it all was and changed his tune. Even with King Edward demanding the feud be raised to put down the rebellion, Harold Godwinson seems to have decided that this was more trouble than it was worth. He threw Tostig under the bus and agreed to appoint the younger brother of Earl Edgar of Mercia, a kid called Morker, as the Earl of Northumbria. His brother Tostig was exiled from England, filled with bitterness and a sense of betrayal and fury. The king apparently suffered a stroke at the sheer audacity of the rebels and the strain of all of this and removing the most important northern earl and at Harold's seeming willingness to betray his own baby brother. Harold seems about now to have decided that the king was getting on, and he wanted to cement relations with the next generation of earls of England, not the old guard. He never saw the implications caused by ejecting his own brother like this. But that isn't a really a surprise. In the end, I admit my severity here. I judge Harold Godwinson very critically, the same way I judge his father so. I must stress again, Harold was not a native true-born Anglo-Saxon seer of the land. His father had been the Victor Quisling of English history, the man who sold out the nation for a Dane. His father had started a powerful Anglo-Scandinavian faction that had usurped the ruling Anglo-Saxon one. Harold had butchered his way across Wales. He was willing to get grand ideas into his head, like go after Elfgar of Mercia again and again, and to start wars without any thought of the consequences, and he certainly did something in Normandy that caused the old king to rebuke him. This was a man who, despite being the most powerful lord of England, despite basically dominating the Witangamot, 
had probably insisted Archbishop Seward, who was guilty of all kinds of corruption, remain in place despite being excommunicated because it was better to have his man run Canterbury than someone of the king's choosing. Harold Godwinson was charismatic in person, vigorous and vital, but I see no evidence, and trust me I looked, zero evidence that he was capable of the skills required to be any kind of leader. I mean, Edward was not that great, but he was better than Harold. Harold Godwinson was a middle manager in a senior management position, with all that went with it. And let me say once again, everything bad that was about to happen to England, and a lot of bad things were about to happen to England and London, all of which could be laid at the feet of Harold Godwinson. Still, as the weather turned and the cold set in, Harold set his affairs into order and set off for Westminster for the Christmas celebrations of 1065. The King's Abbey next door to his palace was looking good and Edward and Edith would celebrate holiday with their family there in the shadow of London. The world was about to change forever. And I'm going to end it here, and next week it's 1066, and London is about to experience a year like no other. Join me next week as we drop a special two-part episode as we cover the Year of Three Kings. <laughs>